And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not sure about you, but one of the things that people have told me a number of times in the last uh, almost four years since, since starting here at Trinity and moving to Canmore is that, uh, I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, Sean, you live in a postcard. And you know what? In, in so many ways, they're absolutely right, the people who say that. That's not to say that, that living here doesn't have its challenges, because it does. It doesn't mean that the Bow Valley is some sort of a utopia where everything is perfect, and it doesn't mean that sometimes I don't take that for granted. But for those of us that call this area home, I mean, open up the blinds and have a look out the window right now. Think about how many people, maybe less in the last 14, 15 months or so, but think about how many people spend all kinds of time, all kinds of money to come and visit our backyard. And for many, visiting the Rockies is a once-in-a-lifetime trip. They come here to see and experience all the beauty around us. Well, here in John chapter 9, we're introduced to a man who has never seen anything. He's never seen light or color or beauty. He's been in darkness his entire life. And this man that was born blind is going to serve for us uh, as an illustration for all of humankind, that we're living in a spiritual darkness and, and we can't see the beauty of God on our own. Now, John chapter 9 can be divided into three parts, and we're going to get through all three of these parts this morning. First, we see the miracle in verses 1 through 7. And then we kind of see the, the reaction and the interrogation in the center section of this chapter. And finally, it closes with some application verses. So we're going to walk through those three things this morning. But this chapter, it also does two things for us. Again, when I've read this section before, chances are I've, I've probably either done it in a reading plan or I've sort of jumped in and read chapter 9 and then jumped out and maybe read somewhere else. But one of the things that this chapter does is it's, it's kind of a case study for what we've just come out of, which makes sense. It's got to be placed within its context. And so what we see Jesus talking about in the second half of chapter 8, you know, at the, the Festival of Tabernacles where he's talked about, I'm the light of the world, and, and all these things now comes into sort of the practical application in this chapter. Chapter 9 is, is, is really a fantastic summary of all the things that Jesus has been saying about himself throughout this festival section, chapter 7 and 8. In fact, this chapter as well may actually be attached to the same time as that festival. He may, he may still be, you know, maybe the next day, the next moment after chapter 8 concluded. We're not totally sure, but it, it's not an unreasonable expectation to say that chapter 8 concluded and maybe the next day chapter 9 happened. This chapter will show us what Jesus has been saying about himself, that he is the true and better light that surpasses anything that the temple can offer. He is the messenger from God. He brings God's word to the people and he gives life, real, true, everlasting life to all that believe in him. The second thing this chapter does is, is once again shows us how much of John's gospel is kind of speaking on two levels. The physical level, and a lot of people get stuck there, 
and the spiritual level. And Jesus always pushes us towards that spiritual level, that spiritual truth as well. The blind man's physical healing becomes a symbol for us of his spiritual healing. And we'll watch this progression happen through the chapter. It's beautiful and it's brilliant. And at the end of the chapter, we'll see that the blind man's physical blindness has been replaced by the Pharisee's spiritual blindness. So let's jump in with the first couple of verses here. John chapter 9. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, I I do think we need to pause here for just a second and and look at this question the disciples have just asked. Now, first of all, we need to understand that blindness was far more common in Jesus' day than it is today. Uh, Eye diseases weren't really diagnosable or treatable. Uh, There was poor sanitation, especially around water in those days. And so that increased the risks and the consequences of, of eye disease, eye infection, and blindness. But I think it's important that we spend at least a couple of minutes, even though this is a much larger topic, on the disciples' question, whose sin caused this? Now, like many Jews in the day, the disciples assume that this bad thing happened. The man was born blind because somebody sinned, and this was God making that right or handing out a consequence. This is, is pretty much the view of, of karma, right? You get what you deserve. Either, either this man sinned while he was in the womb, which the rabbis taught was possible, not totally sure how, but that was a, a reality of their thinking. Or the man's parents had sinned before his birth, and so the baby got what he deserved because of that sin. He was born blind. I'm not sure if you've read the book of Job recently, but it's come up in my reading plan and audio Bible plan. But the disciples here basically take the position, their position hasn't changed from that of Job's miserable comforter friends who say to Job, listen, Job, all these horrible things have happened to you. Clearly you have sinned. Repent and God will make it all better. Now, in a sense, of course, sin and suffering are connected. When, when sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter 3, suffering followed. And we can track this connection, this universal connection between sin and suffering all throughout the Bible. But the problem comes when we assume that every individual case of suffering is directly related and connected to that person's individual personal sin. Sometimes, of course, that is the case. My sin leads to consequences and sufferings, but not always. And we can trace that through Scripture, too. Again, think of Job, or think of Paul's thorn in the the flesh. It wasn't necessarily attached to a single sin that God was then punishing them for. And so, as we'll see, Jesus doesn't say that, that sin and suffering are not connected in a general sense, But he basically throws out the disciples' question. He rejects their whole line of questioning here. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered, It's not that this man sinned or his parents. Of course, they had sinned because all of us have sinned. But he's like, It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Then he says to his disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day because the night is coming when I'm going to go and no one will be able to work. For as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So there Jesus ties this passage back to chapter 8 where he just declared that he was the light of the world. Now one last, again, quick, hopefully not overly brief thing on this piece. How many of you read that section and thought, or maybe had heard of it in the past and thought, what kind of a God would make a man suffer for years just so that when Jesus comes, he could heal him? Have you ever thought that? I've thought that. It's like Jesus has just said to his disciples, God chose this man and decided, I'm going to give this guy a hard life for however long. He's, he's of age, we'll find out. So at very least 13 years, he could be longer than a blind beggar. But I'm going to just make this guy suffer so that when Jesus comes, we'll display his glory. But couldn't God have done something different? Now often, as is often the case, we have to recognize that there are some challenges in translation, specifically in the grammar and what's called the purpose clause here. Now, without getting too, too deep in it, one commentator, Gary Burge, sort of summarizes these difficulties this way. He says that the purpose clause explains that Jesus must work so that, the God, that God's work may be displayed in this man's life. God had not made the man blind in order to show his glory, but rather God had sent Jesus to do works of healing in order to show his glory. So what he's saying is, yes, in the general sense, this man was blind because of sin in the world. And because of that sin in the world, he was blind. And when Jesus comes, he's going to show dramatically that Jesus has come to deal with sin. There's a big difference there. God didn't just make him blind for this thing, but but he was blind and God was going to use that in order to show his glory. You see the difference there? I hope so. But here's the question for us as well as we think about this man born blind and Jesus coming. Do you and I, do we look at trials and sufferings the same way the disciples do? Do we believe that then when we hit hard times, when we hit trials in our lives, whatever that might look like, when, when bad things happen, that they always happen because we've done something wrong. Maybe we wouldn't exactly put that language to it. But maybe on the flip side, the question is, do we believe that if, if we do all the good things, if we do all the right things, if we follow God's rules and check off all the boxes, then God owes us and has to give us good things. How do we evaluate trials and suffering in our lives? Matt Carter helpfully shares this. He says, whenever I face a trial, I struggle with viewing it legalistically, which is really what the disciples have done here, right? Well, he must have broken a rule, so he's got this blindness. Carter says, I face these trials. I struggle with viewing it legalistically. God, how could you allow this to happen to me? Haven't you noticed everything I'm doing for you? He says, my next response is to see how quickly I can make the trial stop. All the time missing the fact that God has a bigger purpose in mind for my suffering. And to short circuit the trial would be to miss out on the display of God's glory in the trial. See, sometimes we hit hard times so that God can teach us something. If everything's going well in my life, I, maybe it's just me, maybe you can identify with this, but when things seem to be going well, 
I tend to slip into the idea that, hey, I've, I've kind of got this under control. Maybe, maybe I don't need God. I probably wouldn't say that out loud, but my actions might say that. Sometimes God gives us trials and sufferings to remind us that we're not in control. We, we hit these things when we try to do it on our own, and we need him. And God can always use our trials and our sufferings to bring him glory. Let's get back to the story here, to the narrative. Verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus saying these things to his disciples. He spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed, and he came back seeing. Jesus looked back at the guy, bent over, spit in the mud, which is kind of gross, let's be honest. But at that time, there was, a, there was a thinking that the saliva of great people actually had healing properties. So maybe it's just playing into the common ideas of the day. But he made little mud balls and rubbed them on the man's eyes and then said, okay, head out to this specific pool and wash. Now, that Jesus said to the man, go to the pool of Siloam is significant. He probably could have gone to, you know, next door and asked for some water and got some water out of a jug and wiped his eyes. But this was the pool that was used for the water ceremony in the festival of tabernacles. So again, Jesus has just said in this big festival, there's a festival of water. And, and he said, I, if you come to me, you'll never be thirsty. I will give you living water. There'll be springs of living water coming from outside of you. And in that ceremony that was looking forward to Jesus, they went throughout the town. They went to the pool of Siloam to get this water and bring it back. And Jesus said, head to that pool. The second significant thing about the pool of Siloam is that as John writes for us, it means scent. More than 20 times in John's gospel, Jesus is described as the one who has been sent. And so what's just happened in this verse is that the man, the blind man, was sent to the pool called sent by the one who was sent by God. Finally, and I'm sure there's more, but the third reason this pool is significant is that this pool is actually mentioned in the Old Testament as well. In Isaiah 8, 6, uh, Isaiah mentions it. This, this chapter is a, a prophecy about the Messiah coming, and, and God warns the Israelites about the judgment that will come if they refuse the waters of Shiloh, which is the, the Hebrew name for Siloam. So if they refuse the waters that God will provide, then there will be judgment coming. And so the question is raised here as, as Jesus points this man to that same pool, will history repeat itself? Will the Jews once again reject what God has sent? So all this is happening in the background here. And so we read, and it's, it's interesting, verse 7, we read with very little fanfare, the man stands up, he obeys Jesus, he heads to the pool, he washes, and for the first time in his life, he can see. I don't know how long it was. It was probably a long time. Again, at least 13 years to be considered of legal age, likely longer. But can you imagine for the first time in his life, he doesn't have to have someone explain what's going on around him. He now sees it with his own eyes. And so here's the big idea Jesus is the light of the world, 
and the light of the world just brought sight to this man's eyes. Now we get into the next section of the chapter of reactions and interrogations. And again, in those days, uh, often people claimed to, to be something significant and to have some sort of healing powers. But here now, standing in front of everyone was a person that uh, the people knew. They would have known this man who had been begging for a while. They would have known that he was blind and that's why he was begging. And they can tell that a miracle has taken place. Something dramatic, something supernatural has happened because this man who has been blind for however long is now claiming to be able to see and presumably proving by his actions that he can see. And that never happened before. A blind man could see. And so what we have in the next 25 verses or so is more likely an, an abbreviated version of what takes place. This whole scene probably happened over the course of hours as people asked all sorts of questions that you and I would ask too. Wait a minute, are we sure this guy was born blind? Is this, are we talking about the right person here? How can he see now? This doesn't make sense. Who did this? How did Jesus do this? Can Jesus do this again? Where does he get this authority, this power, this, this healing power? Is this divine? And so we see four scenes take place in the center section. First, we see the man interacting with uh, his neighbors, with the crowds. And we see them asking all of these really reasonable questions. They're not sure what to make of it. The man says, listen, I'm the guy. I was blind. I've been sitting here blind forever and begging, and this man called Jesus gave me sight. Now the people, they, they understand that something miraculous had happened. As we'll see a little bit later, they say, this doesn't happen. Blind people don't see. And so they recognize that it's probably something supernatural, and so they take it to their theological experts, the experts in all things about God, the Pharisees. The second section, the Pharisees uh, come on the scene, starting in verse 13. And they assume Jesus is guilty, that Jesus has sinned because he's breaking God's law and working on the Sabbath. Therefore, this thing that Jesus has done, this healing, could not be a work of God. It's interesting, and I think tragic, once again, to see that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are more concerned with their man-made Sabbath laws. I mean, God had commanded us to keep the Sabbath holy, but things like working on the Sabbath were laws that they had added to guard and protect that. So they were more concerned with the, the man-made guardrails around the Sabbath law than the significance of this never-before-seen healing of a man getting his sight back. They're not sure how to reconcile this Sabbath rule breaker in Jesus with the miraculous power. And so they ask the man who was once blind, what do you say about him? And the man replies in verse 17, he's a prophet. Look at this. He's already growing in his spiritual sight, isn't he? A man named Jesus told me to do this. And now he says, wait a minute, this guy's got to be a prophet. In other words, the man says, this Jesus who rubbed the mud on my eyes and told me to go, he must be from God if he can do these things. Then we step into the third section here, the third uh, interaction or this, and interrogation. The Pharisees bring in the man's parents. 
They didn't get anywhere with the man born blind, and so they go to his parents. And what they're trying to do here is now disprove the miracle, where they say, listen, your kid wasn't really born blind, was he? But the parents reply, listen, this is definitely our son. And he was definitely born blind, and now he can see, but we don't know how this happened. The parents then tell the Pharisees, ask our kid what happened. He's of age. He's old enough. He can speak for himself. There's a short editorial comment in verse 22, and it's really important for us that John has thrown in this. It says that the parents were worried about how to answer the Pharisees because there was already talk going around that if anyone claimed to be a follower of Jesus, they'd be thrown out of the synagogue. This is what of course, we're going to see happens to the man himself, but, but there was a consequence to following Jesus, and it was going to be being thrown out of the religious center, the community center, the social center of the day in the synagogue. And so they wrestled with this, and they, they didn't want to give a firm answer. They said, go talk to our boy. He's old enough. Here's the thing for us. Right from the beginning, Jesus hasn't even made it to the cross yet, but right from the beginning of his ministry, Publicly following Jesus cost something. It did then, and it does now. This final reaction and interrogation section, uh, the blind man, the formerly blind man, comes back to the presence of the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are stuck. There's a couple of things they can't do here. They, They can't deny the miracle because it's been confirmed by the people and by the parents but they aren't willing to concede that Jesus is from God. See, because if they do that, then all the things that Jesus has said about them, again, especially through the last couple chapters, remember what we just come out of in chapters 7 and 8, where where Jesus said, well, actually, your father isn't Abraham. You're following the father of lies. You're following Satan. You've, You've missed God. And so if they concede that Jesus is from God and and the things he's saying is true, then the things that Jesus has said about them is true. That means his calling out of their self-righteousness, his, his calling out of their spiritual hypocrisy. They're, they're calling out, Jesus calling out of their pride is true, and they would have to admit that they were wrong. And they're not willing to do that. And so they call in the formerly blind man again, and they try to go after the character of Jesus. They say, give glory to God. Or in, in other words, with God as your witness, do not lie in front of him. Tell us the truth. Because they say, we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Now the religious elite here, the Pharisees, they've got themselves so worked up, and they've been deceived by sin. As one writer says, sin has twisted their minds so much that they find it impossible to see things clearly. Sin causes confusion and it breeds spiritual ignorance. And all this is exposed by the man's simple answer in verse 25. Look what he says. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, but now I can see. How many times have we sung that truth and then we even alluded to it this morning saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. As we keep reading through this section, you can almost hear 
sarcasm dripping off the man's words. I don't know if he actually gets what's going on here or if he's just trying to be honest or if he is actually kind of saying, really, guys, come on, look at verse 27. He says to the Pharisees, I I told you what he did. Why do you keep asking me about these things? Do you want to be his disciples too? Of course, the Pharisees didn't like that very much. A couple verses later in verse 30, he says, well, that's very strange. The man, Jesus, healed my eyes, yet you don't know where he comes from? Again, this sight to the blind was something that never happened. So it had to be something miraculous and supernatural. So the one that did this work must have come from God. And then look in verse 31 to 33. The man actually uses the Pharisees' own words against them. He says, We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man, if Jesus, were not from God, he couldn't have done it. Now the Pharisees had said earlier that there's no way a sinner could do a miracle like this because God wouldn't listen to him, back in verse 16. And so the man here agrees with their logic. You're absolutely right. Only someone from God could do these things. Therefore, this Jesus must be from God. And again, we're watching this man whose, whose eyes had just been given physical light for the first time. His, his physical blindness had, had turned, had disappeared, and now he could see his spiritual blindness was starting to, to come into picture too. He's starting to put the pieces together. He's starting to, to walk in spiritual light as well as he starts to grasp who Jesus is. We've seen this progression happen. Remember in verse 10, he said, this man Jesus, help me. In verse 17, he said, this must have been a prophet. He was a prophet. In verse 22, he said, Jesus was the Christ. And now in verse 37, he said, Jesus must be from God. That's a journey right there. Ironically, the Pharisees wrap up the whole interrogation just hurling accusation at the man. And they said, they answered him in verse 34, you were born in utter sin. They go right back to the same understanding that the disciples had in verse 2, don't they? And you think you can teach us, they say. And they cast him out. The man born blind got what his parents feared. He was kicked out of the synagogue. Because he committed to Jesus, he was cut off religiously, cut off socially for stating what is so obvious, that Jesus must have come from God if he could do these things. Listen, God never promises, and Jesus never promised that following him would be easy. Perhaps, especially in the West, this lie, this false truth is, is rampant. It's, it's, it's mistaken, that this idea that we, if we pray a prayer and, and try to follow Jesus, everything will go well for us. But that's not what Jesus says at all, is it? Ultimately, of course, he's promised life and, and, and wholeness and fulfillment as we end up out of this life and with him for all eternity. But Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you because they hated me first. But following Jesus is worth it. Even if it costs us everything. And if we look at the global church and we see uh, 
every day we could probably find stories around the world of Christians who hang on to their faith and it costs them everything. It costs them their lives. The things we go through now for Jesus will not compare to the future joy we will have with him. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. See, we, we go to Jesus because we understand that in his presence, even if we're in the midst of trials and suffering, but in his presence we find the fullness of joy, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 16. This, of course, doesn't always mean happiness and comfort in this life. We're actually promised that things will be hard, but we go to Jesus for everlasting joy, for everlasting contentment, for everlasting meaning and purpose and identity. Len, then look at verse 35. I love this. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, that they'd kicked this man out of the synagogue and they'd maybe excommunicated him from the church. And Jesus went and found him. And he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He's really specifically using a title, a messianic title for himself here, which he uses often in John. Now, I, I, I love this. Jesus went and found him. This, this man had just received sight, and maybe because now he had sight, he thought, okay, my life's going to be better. I can go to synagogue. I can meet people. I can have community. I can, I can know what's going on around me. And within, it seems like, a few verses, he's been kicked out of that hope. And Jesus says, I'm coming to you. Jesus knew that giving the man physical sight had just cost him big time. And so Jesus goes to him to give him full spiritual sight. Matt Carter, again, helpfully says, before people can receive spiritual sight, they must first acknowledge that they need it. So Jesus pointed out this man's need. He essentially asked, have you placed your faith in the Son of God who became a man? Do you recognize your need for a Savior? And are you willing to turn from your own attempts and trust in him alone to save you? We read in verse 35 and 36, the man asked, well, who is this? Who is this son of man? And Jesus replies, speaking to him, you have seen him. These are very similar or the same words he gave to the Samaritan woman back in chapter four, right? Who is this Messiah? Who, how will we know when he's here? And Jesus says, you've seen him with your own eyes. The man was blind and Jesus just didn't say to him that, that I am the son of man, but he says, you have seen him because you've got your physical sight back. Now earlier in that day, the man couldn't see anything, but now he's not only seeing the world around him, but he's seen the Messiah. His eyes have beheld the Savior. They've landed on the Savior and instantly we read that he begins to worship him. Let me wrap up with, with two application points for us. Again, uh, helped by Matt Carter. First, if, if you and I recognize our blindness, Jesus will give us sight. Imagine if this story, if John chapter 9 went like this. Jesus met a man born blind and promised to heal him. He made some mud, rubbed it on his eyes, and said, go and wash. A couple of hours later, someone else comes by and, and a friend of the man born blind and sees him still sitting there, but now he's got mud on his eyes for some reason. The friend says, hey, uh, what's going on? 
Man says, well, not much. What's going on with you? I said, well, nothing, but why do you have mud all over your eyes? Oh, it's, I don't know, it's just mud. Some guy came by, he rubbed mud on my eyes and said it would help me see if I went and washed them off in this pool. And I let him do it. It didn't make sense. But I'm fine. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm just going to keep hanging out here. Could it be possible for someone that was born blind to assume that he's fine? It's, it's, it's only when we realize that we're missing something, that we are longing for sight when we realize that we're blind. Only the people who understand uh, their condition before Jesus will allow Jesus to, to, to fill our eyes with mud, will then go through town looking ridiculous with mud all over our faces in the hopes of healing. Similarly, only a person who understands our spiritual blindness will turn to Jesus for healing. We are blind. We can't figure it out on ourselves. We can't earn our way back to God. We can't sort out the mess that we're in. And once we realize that, we can come to Jesus and receive sight. The second kind of takeaway, the second application point is, if you think you can see on your own, you can't. See, unless we recognize our blindness, we will always be blind. And that's what we see in these last couple of verses with the Pharisees. Verse 40, we read that some of the Pharisees were with him and heard Jesus say these things to the man who was born blind. And, and they said, wait a minute, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said, if, if you were blind, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say, we see, you, you think you've got it all figured out without me, Jesus says, your sin remains. Until we recognize our blindness, we will always be blind. And until we realize we're walking in darkness, we will continue to reject the light. Kent Hughes uh, summarizes this way. He says, Those who are blind are the ones who don't realize their need. Those who receive sight are the ones that sense their darkness. The Pharisees thought they had it all together. They, they thought they had arrived. Through their acquaintance with the law, they knew that they were not perfect, but they didn't understand how deeply infected they were with sin. And so they adopted the external appearance of having dealt with sin, although actually they'd never faced the darkness in their hearts. They were self-satisfied. They said, we see, but in reality, they were blind. See, the great promise of the Bible, the great promise of God is that God himself would send a savior to those who are in darkness and those who recognize their need for light. Every single day on the planet, there are those who are turning from their own darkness and finding truth in Jesus' statement that I am the light of the world. And tragically, every day, there are those who remain in their darkness and miss out on Jesus. The religious leaders here, and it's not just the overly religious that, that land in this camp, it's those who, who think they figured it out, who think that as a collective we'll make the best plan, it's those who, who think that, you know what, science will save us or this other thing will save us. The religious leaders here in chapter 9 missed out on Jesus because they could not perceive their own blindness. Charles Spurgeon said this, it's not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It's not our weakness that hinders Christ. It's our strength. It's, it's not our darkness that hinders Christ. It's our supposed light that holds back his hand. 
See, it's not that, that I think too little of me. The problem is that I think too much of me. The problem isn't that I think I'm so weak I need Christ and, and Christ can't help me because I'm so weak. The problem is I actually think I'm not that bad. And it holds Christ away. If we want more of Jesus, we have to recognize that we need him and we have a growing need for him. Those who, who drink the most of the fountain of living water are the ones who recognize they're the thirstiest. The ones who eat the most are the ones who feel the hungriest. And those who see and enjoy and experience the most are the ones who flee from darkness and run to the light of the world. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that you are the light of the world. Thank you that you came uh, you walked this world just like we do. You became fully human. And while you were on this earth, you perfectly obeyed your Father. You showed us how to rightly relate to God and to others and to creation itself. You showed us what it means to obey God. And you came from God and you brought a word from God. You were sent by him. You came to show us life. And you came to give us life. You came as the light of the world to, to reveal the darkness in our lives, in our hearts, the places where, where we, we think we're okay but we're not, or the, 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 the places in our lives that we're putting our hope and our trust in something, but, but that something's going to crumble and fall and fail, and, and what we need is you. Holy Spirit, I pray again this morning that, that you would work in our lives, that you would shine Jesus' light in our hearts to reveal any areas of darkness. Not to make us feel bad or not just to bring condemnation on us because we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but, but so that we can uh, repent and turn from those things and hand those things over to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for taking those things, those sins, those rebellions, that, that way I've gone my own way, uh, taken it to the cross and paid for the consequences and, and Jesus, you've given me life and light. Maybe this morning you are recognizing your need for the light and you just need to pray a simple prayer of Jesus, shine your light in my life. I'd invite you to do that now for the first time, for the tenth time, to the hundredth time, however long. Jesus, shine your light in my life. Thank you for your word, Jesus. 